0: It isn't often that I publish an interview on this program in its entirety. I think I've done it maybe four times out of more than 200 episodes, but in this case, I'm going to make an exception. My guest is Ryan McCarty, who runs an organization called The Culture of Good. As you're going to hear, Ryan and I met while both speaking at a client event, and when I heard what he had to say, I knew that we were destined to be friends and that I had to get him on the program. We also discovered that we share a birthday. How often does that happen? So here's our unedited conversation. It's a bit long, about 50 minutes, so I've built in a break right in the middle. I hope you enjoy the
1: show. It's like everything else in life. If you have to keep asking, eventually you quit. Sometimes people just give up, you know, because there's a wrestling of like who's an authority and what we're supposed to do in terms of how we behave and and yet, the older I get, the less any of that makes sense to me. Bits and pieces of it, and the construct I get, but when it comes down to personal choice and the ability to have power, there's there's not so much as you would assume it would be. So, <laughs> no, I,
0: I agree with you. And you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you an essay that I wrote. I don't think I've sent it to you. Um, I read a book. I don't know, maybe. Maybe a month ago I finished it. It was called On Reverence. Did I tell you about this? No. On
1: um,
0: Reverence. On Reverence is the name of the book. Um,
1: it's. The Should sub- we be recording right now? <laughs> I, I, I actually, I
0: just I just hit the button. Yeah. Well, awesome. Edit. Let's just keep talking. Yeah, we'll keep talking. And okay, cool. Um, w- w- the book. Um, I think the subtitle is something like uh, restoring a forgotten virtue. And he's talking about reverence, not in any kind of religious or spiritual way, but he defines it. And by the way, he is a professor of ethics and probably philosophy, I would guess. I'm not sure. I'll give you his name in a minute. But he defines reverence as equal parts awe, respect, and shame, but not shame in like I'm feeling guilty for something, shame as in the internal feeling we have when we know we did something bad or we could have done it better or we could have done something, period, and we didn't. It's the force that makes us want to be better. Whereas, I love that. Yeah, I do too. And and respect is more about, it's the external show. It's saying there's something about you that I respect and that's why I want to have you on my podcast or why I have followed you or why I've read your books or you know whatever it may be. And awe is that unspoken feeling when you stand in front of something for which there are no words, you know, the Grand Canyon, Mm. the ocean, whatever it may, children, you know, whatever. Anyway. My wife. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because the the first one is, or you, you had brought up shame and I think so much around regret, right? So you look back over and you feel shame of something, which means you've matured had you not felt shame you wouldn't have grown to even feel the shame so shame in itself in the ter- in that terminology with the regret that makes a lot of sense you know i look back and i i do have regrets and and the reason i regret some of those things cuz i've grown and and i tell people that all the time if you feel shame and regret or guilt from your past that's not always a bad thing it's an indicator that you've matured you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, and you're aware. That's right? not acceptable to you anymore. That's yeah.
0: exactly. You know, you can't go back and fix it, but what you can do is look forward and say what can I do to counteract it? What can I contribute back into the coffers of society to make the world a better place or whatever? I mean, and and we can do those things, but don't let the don't let the errors of the past, the errors of youth paralyze you looking into the future, which I think a lot of people mm. do. Yeah. So, so I'm looking at your background, man. I I am I gotta ask. I love because you know. At first, I thought, "Oh, he's recording in his kid's bedroom," but no. I mean, this is awesome. (laughs) I see, I see toys. I see, I see like Homer Simpson things. Mr. T, yeah. you got a Volkswagen van, which I already love you. I mean, this is yes. this is got
1: awesome. Qbert and Frogger, the old Atari games. My yeah. dad was a big uh, Atari guy, so I thought we had lost all my childhood games and everything. And my my stepmother passed away about a year and a half ago, and so I got the opportunity to dig through all their stuff, and I found all my my old Atari. Console with all the games. I have like thirty-five games, and so yeah, I I just it, for a long time I kept my office looking like an office, and I'm not a normal office person. I'm not a normal business person, so um, I tend to allow what I love just to be surrounded by. Just finding space for those things now. It's not something I've done all the time but but recently through the pandemic i was just like why do i have all this stuff just kind of stored away let's bring ryan out into the world and and uh yeah the simpsons (laughs) some of this stuff's a little newer you know i've got uh i've I've got a spongebob square pants and everything else but you know i really love bold ideas i love bold brands i love bold color i love just just seeing like the Simpsons and Bart and it just stands out to me. I grew up in the eighties and nineties in New York. And it was, you know, that was just the thing, you know, hip hop culture and icons. I am I am just, yeah, I'm an icon whore. I love it. <laughs> if I could use that word on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. okay. I love icons. I love brands. Well, I really love brands.
0: Well, that and and that actually comes through as we're going to find out. And we get a little bit more into who this Ryan guy is. So, you know, you obviously weren't scheduled to be my guest. You were, he couldn't make it, but you were walking by and I figured I'd just invite you into <laughs> <laughs> the talk. So, it's all right. great. <laughs> who, who is this Ryan guy? We've been talking for a while. We probably ought to tell people at least who you are since you're going to be talking to them for the next few minutes anyway.
1: Yeah, well, I'm a CEO and a co-founder of Culture of Good. So we provide uh, development um, solutions for employees and customers and engagement through community good. So Culture of Good is driven by making a profound impact on the world and doing good through your work. Um, And that's where the engagement comes from. So really fulfilling type uh, environments and rehumanizing business. Um, My background was in nonprofit work for 20 years. I started preaching when I was 15 years old. Uh, So they threw me on stage. I'm a very introverted, more shy kind of person, believe it or not, (laughs) which I find out a lot of performers are introverts. You get on the stage, you still feel like it's you. And, and it's just you and everybody out there. There's still that degree of separation, right? Um, and, but I spent a lot of my time doing ministry work and, and missional work and finding spaces around the world um, locally and also globally that I could fill in the blank, right? I think of the world as a, as a canvas and where there was, you know, uh, not food. Uh, somehow we could paint that food in there, right? Like we could find a way to, to find something in that moment that um, could meet a tangible need and, and just share hope with people, you know? And, and that's what I really love doing. I love I love providing people hope, so, you know?
0: So, yeah, yeah, I do know, and, and it's funny, I, I still remember the day we met, you and I were both scheduled to speak at a client event uh, doing, you know, different things, but at the same event. And uh, we were in Cedar Rapids. And I remember, uh, I think I was having lunch or you were having lunch and whichever one, the other one walked in. It's like a bad joke, you know, two two guys (laughs) walk into a bar. And and I I think I walked in and you were having lunch and I knew immediately who you were. And I sat down and we started eating together at the same table. I hadn't met before. And I don't know, two and a half hours later, we kind of had to pry (laughs) each other apart to go probably unpack or check in or do something. I mean, there was this immediate sort of a click. And then, as we progressed through that week, I think we were building bicycles for kids, or yeah, or,
1: yeah, yeah. I actually check this out, man. I
0: look. Oh, I love it! I yeah, I got I got the it same that picture. That Absolutely,
1: was it. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, yep, yeah, that's it. That's
0: yeah, gr- crazy. group of people competitively building bicycles <laughs> that would then be given away to kids that needed a bicycle, which was right. a pretty pretty special thing. You're your mission, how do I say this? It really struck a nerve with me for a couple of reasons. One, it's refreshing, first of all. Second of all, it's not the least bit smarmy or there's a, there's really an agenda here that has nothing to do with what I portray physically. I mean, what you do is what you do. And that really hit me hard. You and I have both spent time in parts of the world where the idea of having everything you need is merely a suggestion for a lot of people, and we've right. seen what happens when when people live that way. And I've always been astounded visiting those places. That oftentimes the happiest people I've ever met are the people that have the very least in the world. It's not that they don't want more, but they figure out a way to see the good in what they do have, and that's what they focus on. They don't focus on what I don't have; they focus on what they, you know, what I do have. And mm-hmm. and there's a lot of lessons to be, you know, to be learned there. One of the things that that I wanted to ask you about as we get into this stuff is probably a year ago, maybe not even that long, as we move into this topic, you told me a story about a teacher that mm. really had a big impact on you and, and I think was frankly seminal in getting you where you are today. Can you share that story? Because I think that's a great way to kind of pave the road as we go forward here
1: yeah and this is a really interesting story so i lost my mom to suicide when i was six years old she was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and uh, about a year after her diagnosis is when that happened and i was in class that day my dad at the time was a heroin addict he had come back from vietnam it's actually how he met my mom she was a nurse at the va hospital my dad was a drug addict strung out in an alley in, in uh, northern Indiana, and my my soon to be aunt, <laughs> his sister, found him in an alley, strung out, and sent him to the VA. And he and a nurse fell in love, and here I am. <laughs> That's incredible. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that tragedy when I was six uh, was the tragedy that did create a, a foundation for my dad to get his life turned around. So the, the, good, the good news to this story is since 1983, my dad has been completely free from drugs and everything. And we still have a wonderful relationship. We go fishing together, uh, spend way too much time at Goodwills buying vintage clothing and finding antiques that we don't need. And uh, he's a hoarder and I'm, I call myself a collector. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, we just have the we had just have the best time together but when i lost my mom all i had was him and a 12-year-old sister that was that was it we didn't have a uh, you know we had a family that wasn't from the same town we were in and and so we were really alone in that moment and during my mom's funeral uh, actually is when they called my teacher Mrs. Parks. Now, Mrs. Parks uh, didn't know really all the f- dynamic that was going on in my family, but when she showed up, she showed up and she became a presence in my life from the funeral on just for a short time. So she was a, she was uh, moved by how broken my family was. She went home to her husband after the funeral and said, I want to adopt this kid is he has no hope. He doesn't have a future. It seems his family is completely, you know, fallen apart. And um, I would, I would like to adopt him. And her husband said, would you stay out of your kids' lives? (laughs) But she just couldn't do that. Now she didn't adopt me. However, she stayed in my life during a good period of time of that year where she was still my teacher. And she said, Ryan, I want you to know, and a lot of times when you go through tragedy as a kid, you don't know that there was anyone there for you. And she said three words, and it was, I was there. And that's what I always talk about. I, w- I want people to, to remember there have been people there like for you, and also you've been there for yourself. And she said during class, as she was teaching before class, she would put a, a blanket or a towel on her shoulder, and she knew inevitably during the class she would have to pick me up Or want to pick me up and hold me and she would said she would teach the rest of the class holding me because i would just uncontrollably be crying in in class you know childhood trauma and didn't know how to deal with that and uh, so she said again i just want you to know that i was there and uh, uh 30 years later uh having met her at six years old and not remembering who she was that's when we were reintroduced she came back into my life and she met me at that time. I was a pastor. I came down uh, off the stage after service and she walked up to me and she said, are you Ryan? And I said, yeah, I'm Ryan. She said, are you Ryan McCarty? And, uh, I could start to see tears in her eyes already. And I said, yes. And her first response was you probably don't remember who I am. And I said, don't. And she, and she immediately after that said, I'm your teacher. And you lost your mom to suicide. And she said, I really, by this point, thought that you would not be alive. I thought you would have died by now. That's what she told me. That's how messed up my family was. Yeah. And she was reintroduced back into my life in a moment that taught me several lessons. You don't always know your impact. And you don't always need to know your impact that you can be more than whatever your job title is when you show up for people as a human being that cares. Uh, You can be more than a boss, CEO, business owner. You can be more than a VP. You can be more than any layer of whatever position you get by showing up and being present. I learned something else from her that was really, (laughs) really important. When I was younger in ministry, everything was about changing the whole world. You know, I was, called to go out and do something great, you know? And I went to her funeral. She passed um, a few years after we were uh, reintroduced together. And I went to her funeral. And it was the old Catholic church that I had grown up in. And it had all the same smells. They use the same incense. I don't know how they keep making the same incense. But I walked in and it was just like remembrance. Because my mom, who died of suicide, used to take me there. Uh, before she passed. And I remember playing underneath the pews. And so here I am sitting on these pews, and I'm watching person after person get up on stage and talk about this woman who I I really didn't know as, as much as I wanted to. But everything that people said, I knew about her. I knew everything about her that people said. What they said about her was not about wow, she really figured out as a teacher how to make lots of money and have a nice car and a nice house. Or It was never about any of those things. What they said at her funeral was <clears throat> she looked at me a certain way that let me know that she cared. I could see it in her eyes. She wouldn't even have to say anything. And I, person after person after person, how this teacher showed up for them, just showed up she changed the world in a lot of people's lives. And she changed my world. And that taught me so, so much because I realized that in all my accomplishments and everything that I've done at the end of the day, how I look at someone matters, how they see me, how they perceive, how I perceive them. Just that that look of I care may be the life-changing, world-changing thing that needs to happen. And um, there's been so many people that I would have hoped to have made a difference in their life, but never saw the impact. And I could imagine for 30 years, you know, she said that she was praying for me. (laughs) She said that she thought of me all those years. And it was just a a really profound lesson in life that sometimes your ripple doesn't get back to you till 30 years later. Sometimes you, you never see your impact. There's times that you have changed someone, the course of someone's life in a positive way and you'll never know it. And doing things for others without the payback of knowing it, that's that's that reverence, isn't it? That's that, that respect for life and for people and recognizing that what we do is not about us. There's been so many seasons in my life where I've built something. And toward the end of that was reminded, you've got to build it for the next generation. You've got to build, we have to build things to hand the keys off. We don't want to hand the keys off to a generation. Like, like I wouldn't give my, my daughter a car that I know is going to break down and that is going to potentially cause risk or harm to her. I wouldn't hand those keys off, but we have a world that potentially causes risk and harm education systems policing civil authority uh, universe you know academia all of it all of it we have to look at it as our responsibility in our generation to say how am i building this to hand the keys off to the next generation because they're going to have to drive this thing <laughs> after I'm gone. And, well, I, and it's,
0: especially it's, today, right? I mean, given what's yeah. going on with the environment, with you know the political gridlock that we're experiencing, all that stuff, how dare we hand this mess off to them? It is their world to run. And it should be, yeah. there, just like it was ours when our time came but it is our job to stand in the background and provide wisdom and resources and knowledge and insight that
1: will help them, but not tell them how to do their job. That's, that's their role, not ours. That's how we raise children, right? I mean, we, raise, we, we actually don't raise children, we raise adults. Good point. That's, the, that's, that's an issue too. <laughs> yeah. That's something that I really appreciate about how uh, my wife and I have been married now 26 years. And uh, we've been able to see the, the fruit of or the benefit of being able to raise adults. And, and that's really what we were focused on. And we said that from the beginning, we're not raising kids, we're raising adults. How are they empowered to think for themselves when, when we're raising kids? They don't because we're telling them how to think. And and I, I think there's elements of being able to teach and teach integrity and character and but within that context, how does that next generation apply those within their life? How do they tactically live those things out is gonna look way different than the generation. And that's always been that way, right? There was a generation that was upset that the teenagers were listening to Elvis and shaking their hips. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things that there's always going to be the disconnect. But what can be connected is our heart and our desire for the next generation to succeed and do well. And I think that's what, that's why we push ourselves too hard. That's why we want to We want to micromanage, in a sense, the business of the world because we are afraid that they're going to screw it all up. And I would say a lot of things need to be a little more screwed up. (laughs) They're already screwed up. Yeah,
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: And and I'm seeing this next generation as as being very much around like, how do we solve these problems uh, that have been handed to us? And I, I think every generation has also that calling as well. And, and, and we all do stand in, in a place where we have that obligation and that accountability to that next generation. But if they're just accountable to us in the, in the sense of a child to a parent, rather than thinking as a parent, I'm accountable to them. How, how am I, and this is leadership in general, how are we as leaders accountable to our team? How are we accountable to our values? That sense of accountability and that sense of obligation and knowing that, that as, a, as a parent, as a leader, as a manager, boss, whatever it is, owner, those of us that have titles, positions, places of authority have been given that privilege To whom much is given, much more is required, right? That idea that if I have this influence, how do I lean my life into the world in a way that creates a positive momentum for the next generation to keep running when I'm gone? And for Mrs. Parks, a complete circle for me, um, for her, it was showing up in my life when I was six and she had no ability No internet back then to reconnect with me or know where I was at. I I moved to New York and lived all over the place. But the obligation that she felt did not come from a teacher's manual. It didn't come from a a business uh, session or conference. It came from her soul. It came from a deep place on the inside of her that was empathetic that felt the pain of someone else, even though it wasn't her pain. And she was willing to get into the ugly parts of life in the world with a six year old kid that had nothing, not one iota of anything to offer her back. It's incredible. And that to me is, is, um, when you bring up the word reverence, I feel it that way. I almost get chills talking about it because it's it's the desire to impact another person and live not for yourself mm-hmm. not right but mm-hmm. but in that same tone also recognizing that as i give to others <laughs> you know you know how it works the the more you give and the more you share and the more you are a compassionate person the more grace you give out and the more love you offer the more of that comes back to you
0: yeah. And it doesn't have to be, you know, what the, the overused phrase, it doesn't have to be a boil the ocean effort, right? I mean, sometimes the smallest thing, the smallest effort is all it takes. And something I'm reminded of fairly often is, you know, you go out of your way to do something kind for someone. Again, hold the door for them, help them with a the package, smile, greet them, doesn't take very much. That may be the single most pleasant thing that happens to them. All day long, and I'm not trying to be dramatic here or melodramatic, but it's true. We get so yeah. wrapped up that we realize that when you walk by someone and they smile at you, you forget, unless you deliberately think about it, how good that feels, how good that feels, how important that is.
1: I guess that's one of the things that I I feel a I, I feel when I smile and like I feel fulfilled in that moment. So I'm I'm. I'm you know, the smaller things. I think we've talked about before, you know, your destiny is not this major check, you know, at the end of your life where you say, well, if I could just figure out what my life purpose is or my life destiny, you know, like it's the destination. Destiny means destination. There is no destination. The destination actually is, and, and we talk about this, but it's more than like a A quote on Instagram. It's about the journey. It's about the process because the journey is the destination. We're here. We've arrived. We've come to Earth. It's the biggest uh, lottery that we could have ever won. (laughs) We made it to Earth. There's breath in our lungs. We have the ability to do good. And um, I'm reminded years ago, I heard the analogy that our destiny and our purpose isn't spent in one large big check. In, in a big fanfare, you know, that gets a publicity and commercial press. It's a, more about living out daily a nickel here, a dime here, a smile there. And we spend our lives not in one big lump sum. We spend our lives nickel by nickel and dime by dime and quarter by quarter by a hug, by sitting down for an hour to listen to someone and not give any advice, but just be there to listen to put an arm around a shoulder to to give someone a compliment I mean that's one of the things that I've added into my repertoire more and more is to find something small to compliment find something different about the person that maybe a piece of art that's on the wall in their office that is different that you've never seen before and you just simply notice it what are you doing you're noticing them because that means something to them. So when you notice that, then all of a sudden they open up and they're and it why? Because because our life and in our connections with people isn't some big fanfare thing that I thought it was gonna be. You know, it's not Disney production. It's it's getting up, making your bed, <laughs> getting the coffee shop, maybe paying for someone else's coffee if you can giving someone encouraging, you know, I, I, you know, I love, I love being in small towns, but, but we're in a large, not a large, large city. We're in Indianapolis, Indiana. The neighborhood we're in is smaller. And I, I just love being able to get to know people. Right. I'm, um, I've always loved people's stories. That's a, that's you though. That You really love people's stories. I remember that. That's why it was two and a half hours. You're pulling my whole story out of me.
0: Yeah, but, but uh, that's the key, right? I mean, and you, you live this. You've built a whole company around this. To me, yeah. <laughs> you know, I believe that everybody has a story to tell. If you just give them the opportunity to tell it and shut up, because hmm. then it's about them. And if yeah. you listen, if you truly listen, you're gonna you're gonna gather gold dust from that story. Your point about looking around and complimenting a piece of art—I wasn't complimenting your office because I, you know, I wanted—I was trying to be like, you See, know, let, you let's go. let's get in with this dude. It wasn't that at all. It was okay. This is very atypical. Just like, you know, I'm a reader. I like books. I've, I'm surrounded by them. I can't tell you how many times Ryan people have said. Oh, dude, where did you download that background? That's really cool. And I'm like, um, Barnes and Noble. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean?
1: <laughs> right. you know, I know. I was looking at your books, and then I'm looking at my books. And I'm like, you know what? I need, I, uh, I need to step up a little bit. You're like an OG man. You're an original gangster. I'm a baby gangster. That's a BG. <laughs> It is. It's is that like a ham radio on yourself up there? I'm, I'm, oh no, it's just a picture. Okay. Oh, Yeah, it's a picture. No, it's a picture. Okay, It's all knobs. No, I'm no, no. Grab, definitely I got a got all picture. All kinds of stuff going. Actually, out. you know what
0: those are? Those are my. Um, those are um, year pins. Five year, ten year, fifteen year pins from telephone company from life at Life at Pacific Bell.
1: My oh my s- good! Oh, I just saw a Pacific Bell hat. I wish I would have known you worked at Pacific Bell. It was black. It had the gold gold uh, wow, captain funny. stuff, original belt. You're kidding me. No, I know exactly where it's at too. I love that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, That's wild.
0: I have to keep that up there because it's such a part of, you know, how I got to this weird, weird place that I am. <laughs> talk me, talk to me about passion. Yeah. Because passion to me, you know, is something that you exude like sweat. It's uh it's it's part of who you are and it doesn't
1: smell as bad. that's
0: oh nowhere near. nowhere near no <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean pa- passion is um, passion is something that gets a lot of lip service, but I'm not convinced people ever take the time to li- deliberately stop and say, okay, I use that word a lot, but I'm not sure I actually know what it what I mean by it or what it actually means. I think it's central to your mission. I think it's central to what we talk about all the time.
1: Talk to me a little bit about that. Riff on it a bit, if you would. Yeah. Yeah. Passion. Uh, when I think of passion, I think of the word compassion. And I think of the idea that we are passionate and we have passion when we can have compassion. To me, we I can be passionate about all kinds of stuff. I can be passionate about sports or work. I can be passionate about my kids and my wife. I can be passionate about a lot of things in terms of feeling a compelling desire, if I were to describe it that way, to act upon a, a compelling, like my soul is compelling me to, to act on what I feel. I think that's what makes us really special is Uh, creatures as uh, homo sapiens, that we have the ability to connect emotion to, to action and also to memory and to how we feel and what we've gone through in our past. So we hold memory and we connect emotion to it. I think that's one of the things that's, that's unique about us. And I, I there's, I'm sure there's science behind that, (laughs) but, but when, when I think about what I've been through and I feel it, that compassion when it compacts the passion together (laughs) reminds me that I've come past something myself. So when I've come past something that compassion then turns into passion. So it's different than I have a strong desire for pizza at three o'clock in the morning. It's something that moves you to start a pizza company. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's something that goes beyond um, the everyday desires and wants of life. And it, it's something that compels you almost to a point where it's embedded into your subconscious, where you're starting to act in life based on this passion without even ever having to think about, is this something that I'm passionate about? And, and when, I, when I think about passion, I think about how to identify uh, what my passion is. It really has to do with um, my behavior, when we think about behavior, behavior comes from belief. So if I have passionate belief and a structure of values and beliefs that I carry and I hold as an honorable way of living and I want to honor those and live up to those values, those beliefs turn into behavior. I behave based on how I think, right? We know that. But how do I think? I think based on how I feel. So if I can remember how I feel... Or how I felt in that moment when my mom died. You can't talk me out of helping kids. So when I'm passionate, when I talk about passion, I'm, I'm talking about it as something that is more of a, what we talked about earlier. Where is the obligation? Right. If I care about the environment, I might pick up some trash when I'm walking in the state park. If I'm passionate about the environment, I may get some friends together. I may go further than that, start a nonprofit. I may go further than that, and that's what I've done. I've I've let my passion lead me to where I'm at, and and this is where I'm at. I, rem- I it's interesting that you bring that up because I I was thinking about it actually this morning. Huh. I said I, I told myself I said Ryan, because it was a moment where I was like ah. Oh, kind of frustrated. Things aren't moving. Like I thought they were going to move with business and different things. And I thought to myself, Ryan, you chose all this. You're here because of you now rock it out, man. Like that younger me, you know? And that's, that's the thing. That's like, okay, like get all the fog out of the way. And remember what, what is it that drives you, that moves you, that compels you, that tells you, you don't have an option here like like that's what we talk about when we talk about calling and going beyond your job or your your career what is your life calling when we say calling we're saying what is calling out to you what is what is what is yelling at you in the world you need to do something about this this is part of the blank canvas and you have a a uh, you have you, you have the ability to, you have paint and you have a paintbrush. Now, how are you going to paint that backpack on that kid that's walking to school without a backpack? How are you going to paint that food onto that table for that family? How will you paint, right? And we can take a blank canvas and we can paint it, but we have to take that action and move in the direction of the need that we see that compels us. And I'm not compelled by every need in the world the same way the passion and following that led me to help other kids as i got older and i remember a 10 year old kid named george and he was in indianapolis indiana i just moved back from bushwick brooklyn i was 16 years old i met his family and i started working with his family and george was a little 10 year old kid and i was in his life for a couple years and then we lost track and 20 some years later here goes this mrs park's teacher story 20 years later he walks into a Verizon store, and I happen to have my book, Build a Culture of Good, and my name's on it with my business partner, Scott Moorhead. And Scott's the little shout out to Scott. He's the uh, CEO of Roundroom and uh, has the one of the largest Verizon retailers in the country. And George had started doing phone repair, unbeknownst to me as he got older, and walked into a store because he was trying to get my business partner's business in one of his 1,200 stores and picked up a book and said, this can't be Ryan McCarty and reached out to me. And we reconnected 20 some years later. And now George and I are the ones who do the podcast together. <laughs> that That
0: is an extraordinary story of synchronicity.
1: But what's crazy about this, Steve, is that he followed damn near the same exact path I did. He became a full-time pastor. I had no idea of any of this until we sat down and talked, became a full-time pastor. Uh, That uh, almost killed him. He had a heart attack at 27 or 28, had a heart attack. Uh, The doctor said, you can't be a pastor anymore. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. It's very traumatic, that type of work. (laughs) But when he left the ministry, where did he go? Into wireless, like I did. Once he left wireless, what did he start doing? keynote speaking and workshops like I did. And then we sat down together. Chills. No kidding. Yeah. And you know, what's fate, what's chance, what's what doesn't really matter to me. You know, it's, it's a profound idea that we have the power in us when we show up for others in those small ways that, nickel, diamond, and quarter way of just really being there mm-hmm. in those moments in people's lives, particularly when people are going through difficult times, when we show up.
0: Folks, this is a natural break point if you need one. Feel free to pause the show here, but do come back. Ryan still has a lot of good things to say. Thanks again for listening.
1: What I'm really proud about is that I've created structures many times in companies where people are given permission to care. They're given the permission to, and I don't know that we always feel the permission to really care about each other Yeah. Um, as much in business, particularly, uh, but just in life in general. Um, we, we want to many times find out what's different about the other person and why, they're different than us or why we can't get close to them. And uh, at the end of the day, we all hurt. (laughs) Yeah. And we all and we all celebrate. I don't want this to be like a sad podcast. But at the end of the day, we all are, you know, we all have a story. And and a part of that story, if we look back over it many times, we find that there have been people that some have come in and out of our lives in just a, a short moment. But to your point, could have even been that one glance i mean i i have those memories i don't know if you i have those memories oh, i have yeah. those memories of a day that was really bad and somebody smiled and i can still see their face
0: mm-hmm.
1: i remember where i was at i was i was in california on the boardwalk and we were walking out i know exactly where we were i don't have a memory like that but those leave impressions on us be, and, and I think because those are the areas of our life where we feel, therefore, they're the most impressionable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's why it's really important to speak life into kids, to speak life into team members, to encourage one another, because our words have power, because they get us to feel something. And if we feel something, we start believing. That's why many people can't get ahead in life, because they heard their whole childhood that they were losers, they couldn't get ahead, and they started believing it, they have those limiting beliefs. And because they have limiting beliefs, their behavior follows it. So if we can speak life over each other and find the things that do unite us, and, and, you know, it does sound like I'm just trying to paint this rosy picture. And I know it's hard to do. I've been at it for decades. This is hard work to do. But the most rewarding work is the work that you don't expect the reward, but it comes back to you as a surprise. And a lot of that is doing good for others without expecting anything back. And maybe 30 years later, you have the opportunity to meet that kid again and you become Mrs. Parks. And I encourage people every once in a while to close their eyes and just visualize that. Visualize moments 10 years from now where people that you've impacted are coming back to say thank you. Well, you know, Ryan,
0: no, I mean, what you're talking about is the purest form of leadership. I mean, leadership has always been for me, this ability to paint a picture of what could be, not what is, and then paint a picture that is so compelling that people say, I wanna be part of that. What can I do to help you achieve it? How can I be part of it? And so you're basically, it's visioning and it's causing people to say, okay, if that is possible, then I want my piece of it. And what I I find so interesting about this is that you took these personal experiences, all these things we've been talking about, whether it's Mrs. Parks or your friend that suddenly showed up out of nowhere with with the same life story you had, and you've turned it into an organization called Culture (laughs) of Good, and now you're taking those very same lessons that worked so well, so compellingly and powerfully in a personal way, to organizations and tell you where I wanna go with this is that I often say that organizations sometimes are bereft of leadership but they practice what I call slogan leadership, meaning they've run down to the poster store and they've bought the, the leadership posters that show the eagle <laughs> flying, you know, or the yeah, guy standing yeah. on top of the mountain, jumping up and down. And you know what it says? Courage Mo- at the bottom, or you know. what it,
1: motivational, motiva- yeah. motivational posters. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and to me, that's, that's slogan leadership. You know, I'm not actually going to lead, but I bought the posters, so we're good, you know?
1: Mm,
0: yeah. You have managed to take this and kind of transmogrify it into this mission that says organizations can, in fact, be passionate. They often aren't, but they can be. They are people, hmm. after all. And I'm just curious. Um, you used a word just a few minutes ago. You you, you use the word soul. Yeah. And you know, let let's not get into the politics of whether corporations are people or not. But can, <laughs> can where, where does company, where does passion live in organizations and Let's talk about the soul of an organization. I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I've seen you in action. I know that I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm just curious kind of how you'd handle that.
1: Well, yeah, I, you know, at when I spent from the age of 11, really before that, but my family raised me in a culture of giving back and doing good. That that was the culture. That was how we that was the essence of our family in the world. If people thought about us, if they knew us, they knew we were a family that was going to be there when people were in need. They, we were. That was just how I was raised. Um, soul, and and I I like to refer to it as bringing your soul to work.
0: Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that.
1: Yeah. So it's like bringing your kid to work, but it's a it's. <laughs> many times we we check our soul at the door. And business can become very soulless. So we never argue whether a company, sometimes we would say, well, that company has no soul. We would say that. Uh-huh. And what we're essentially saying is that what they have is a leadership culture that doesn't put their soul first or how they their impact and their profit-driven first rather than... Uh, people powered and the idea of having the opportunity to bring your soul to work is what we were talking about earlier. It's having that permission to care. It's not just fulfilling the obligation of here are the tasks and the check the box that I have to get done on a daily basis, but how is my work impacting the world in a way that brings me fulfillment? You know, rather than looking at engagement ideas of let's start some new programs to drive employee engagement, I would say that employee fulfillment is the new employee engagement because where I'm fulfilled, I'm engaged. And it's creating space and opportunities for people to have moments of fulfillment in their day as they're doing their work so that it's tied together, regardless of what their work is. And we're seeing that people bringing their soul to work in manufacturing right? and in retail. And it, it's a very privileged thing many times. If you think about the world and we, you talked about that earlier, I've traveled the world. I've, I've sat where people, I, I, I feel the reality that we can't always just think about work as something that's going to bring me fulfillment. So I understand that as well. And I, I do want to mention that. But also to your point, fulfillment, as you said earlier, in terms of happiness can be found on the inside, regardless of what I'm doing, because I'm not a human doing, I'm a human being. And if I can learn to be first before I do, if I can learn to show up with passion for work and for my coworkers and for the community that I can serve. And so we look at culture of good for opportunities for what I felt in the nonprofit space for over 20 years. Meaningful, fulfilling work that gave me a sense of purpose and higher meaning. So I knew that my impact, my contribution, and my passion were colliding together to make the world better, to make this other person's life better. I can care for for my coworkers in a way that maybe makes their life better. So I go into the day with a different mindset. I'm not just going and showing up for a paycheck and, and I'm not just going and showing up just to be another cog in the wheel of, of the work and, and just doing the motions thing, but I'm going to, I'm going to show up and I'm going to commit to living out my passion in a way that impacts other people. And that, that really is, the part of the soul that I talk about is a very core center part of who you are. It's where your values live. I believe it's where the mission of your life and your heart, I believe your soul holds a lot of that pain as well. That's why you feel compassion and empathy for others. You, you I'm sure would say, well, what you're talking about is, is your frontal, cortex, or maybe you're, you know, back, back in here, right? Like what, what's that part, right? But, but it's that it's that you, it's the essence of who you are. At the end of the day, Steve, we've not learned how to first lead ourselves well, because many of us weren't ever led well. But if any of us look back over our lives and say, tell me a leader that was most impactful in your life. Can we do that right now? Yeah. So share with me a leader that was very impactful in your life. Like it really, their leadership stands out to you. Who would that be?
0: It's a bit of an ironic question because as I've written numerous times in my various homages to this guy, the best boss I ever had, the best leader I ever experienced was a guy who worked for me at the phone company. Mm. So he was older than I, but that wasn't really the thing. What it was, was that this guy barely got out of high school, not because he was stupid, he was bored. He came from a family that didn't really put a lot of value on school, never went to college, enrolled in the military, immediately upon graduation, did three tours in Vietnam in the Marine Corps. The only reason he came home was because he drove a, a D9 Caterpillar over a landmine that blew him out of his seat. And his, his uh, superior officer said, you're done. You're going home now. And so he did. And, uh, you know, kicking and screaming, but he went to work for the phone company, um, started in the primordial ooze, the lowest level you start at in the phone company. And he worked his way up, uh, to a really solid middle management position, possibly because of his military experience, possibly because of his background. I don't know. This Mm. guy knew people better than anyone I've ever known. And to this day, I mean, I lo- his name is Tom and I lost Tom about 15 years ago, he died. Mm. To this day, if I find myself in a sticky situation, what creeps into the front of my mind is, what would Tom do here? Yeah, That's what guides yeah. me. That's yeah. what guides me.
1: Yeah. See, that is leadership. That is... To, to me, when we look back over the leaders that have had the most profound impact on our lives were those that showed up, they knew us, they knew our story and they cared. Yeah. And we put all this, you know, there's conferences for how to lead and manage and and all that stuff is great. But again, leadership is something different. It's something that allows us to be the best that we could possibly be. It's interesting that you say somebody that worked for you is your, your favorite boss or leader that, that comes to mind because I've been saying lately that my two daughters, they're 30 and 25. (laughs) I'm in school, brother. Best teachers I I could ever have. Oh man. I'm so thankful for them. Mm -hmm. So grateful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I just think about, that idea of leadership. When the moment you said the my favorite boss or the one that stands out the most is somebody who worked for that's different. Well, now you're talking about leadership. You're not talking about authority. You're talking about someone who, because they lived up to their their values, see, they were accountable. Tom was accountable to himself. Mm-hmm. Who is accountable to his values that's right because of that it built trust because when we when we have a leader that's accountable to something and there's stability there we know we can trust it i need this chair's legs to be accountable to holding me up okay oh yeah And, and and if it's not accountable I don't trust sitting down, right? And so there's there's a level of trust that's built in leadership that you won't find in managing people. There's a level of authenticity and vulnerability that's there that you won't find in managing people. There's empathy and a connection with people that's deeper than what you'll find in managing people. When you find a space or culture where it's a leadership culture, I say leaders are those who lead everyone. Leadership culture is where everyone leads. Mm. If Everyone understands that leadership is really about setting the example of what you're passionate about and what you believe about life and about the world. That's why the vision is cast. You're not just painting a picture because it's a nice picture to paint. You're painting a picture because it's what you see. That's
0: exactly right. And what you just said, that last piece, I think I want to add something to that. This is where leadership and storytelling cross paths because Mm. the key to a well-told story, an impactful story, a story that people will actually listen to, they'll really listen to it, is that well-told stories don't tell you what to do. They tell you how. They show you.
1: Exactly. Right?
0: And that's what Tom did for me. He didn't say, this is what you need to do. He said watch me Mm. and learn. And, and of course he didn't actually say that, but that was the message. I watched him like a hawk. He was my mentor and I learned from him because I knew that in many ways he was sort of a, he was sort of a pole star for me. I mean, he was the guiding light that I followed from a leadership point of view. I always knew that if I followed his lead, I would, I would do the right thing.
1: Yeah, because right. you knew you knew where he was headed.
0: That's right. And it was trust. It was goes back to your point about
1: trust. Yeah, you've, we've, we have to get out of the cowboy mentality and back to more of a shepherd. So the cowboy is driving the sheep from behind and it has the whip and the dogs are running and barking and trying to push people forward yes. in a direction where the shepherd actually the day before t- takes the path that they're going to lead the sheep down and actually walk the path. So a shepherd will walk the path prior to walking the sheep to ensure that the sheep won't get injured, won't get hurt, all of those things. And that's part of the obligation of the shepherd. And when we have a shepherd mentality or a leadership mentality rather than the driving manager, the shepherd says, okay, I'm going to take some steps forward into some of these unknown things. And I'm not really sure how this is going to turn out, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm going to put myself out there first. In, in the same way, maybe not even thinking about it, Tom, did that for you in terms of walking that path so you know if you were going to follow him down a path, there there was going to be good outcomes, even if the path was difficult. And that's another thing. When you're a leading people, they will follow you through the good, bad, and ugly, even in business many times. It doesn't mean that you can treat people wrong. Again, you're leading them, but there's far more grace given to making mistakes and not being the not being the smartest leader in the room necessarily because people believe in you. So so
0: you've uh, you've now taken this in a different direction, and that is you're now producing your own podcast. Yeah, tell <laughs> yeah. me
1: about it. Well, you know, I bought podcast mics about six years ago, <laughs> yeah, or whenever these first came out. I had these mics, I had the stands, I had all these ideas. And then during the pandemic, I was like, what do I what do I do? How do I get my message out? You know, because no keynote speaking. Uh that all dried up. I'm a keynote speaker, you know, and doing workshopping, the majority of that Uh, other than virtual and I really don't like that at all to be honest with you it's not my thing man I think I'm gonna stop doing virtual altogether because I just can't I people like it they get stuff out of it but I leave feeling empty and and I don't like that piece of it for some reason it just feels like I just threw up all over the video and then I just leave and buy there's no relationship there you know but during the pandemic I just thought you know okay, I've got time on my hands. So that's not an excuse anymore. I've got all the equipment, I've had it. So that's not an excuse anymore. I've got the entire architecture to get this thing going. And so I decided to really talk about the things that I talk about what we're talking about today. Uh, and, and it's called champion your culture. Uh, George, the 10 year old kid that I met when I was 16. We got together after I shot a couple of the first, I might've shot one episode. This is another story. I shot one episode. I called George and George was in the process of starting a podcast as well. The same week. It's a little weird. So (laughs) so I was like, well, why don't we do this together? So now uh, because of that, now I've hired George. So he's on staff with me. And we go live every single week, which is probably a mistake, but we do it anyway because I love doing the whole live, who knows what's going to happen. The first episode, because it was live, the, the curtain when it was just me was falling down. I bought this big black tarp and you know the whole get up. And so the first episode was just falling apart. And then George comes in a couple episodes later and we've gone. We just celebrated one year of every week. I think we missed one week uh, in the entire year of going live on LinkedIn on Wednesdays. Now we go live on YouTube and all of it through StreamYard. So we use StreamYard and we just push it out live on all the platforms. And then afterwards, just you know, download the audio. And then we, we send that out uh, through another platform, Buzzsprout or whatever, and and that goes out to all of them as well. And the more automated I can make things, the better. Um, so it's it's available to listen anytime, and it's about championing culture. It's really about championing people, and it's it's finding those that are that that care about people in business, um, and many times that extends way past HR people to leaders that really have a heart for. Wanting to build a culture that is good for employees, for customers, also for the community in the world. All right,
0: Dr. McCarty, tell me something. (laughs) Where where do people go to find out more about
1: you and the culture of good? Cultureofgood.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, mostly Uh, LinkedIn. I think I'm McCarty Ryan. But if you search Ryan McCarty on LinkedIn, I'm there. And uh, yeah, our website's cultureofgood.com. And that's where you can find out about all the solutions that we provide for leadership and culture development. And so, yeah, that's, that's, it. Brilliant. Thank you for joining me, my friend. I really appreciate it. And, uh, I just want to say to you, I appreciate you staying connected. Thank you, Ryan. One, one thing that I'm not going to claim I'm very great at, and for you to continue to reach out to me has has impacted me because it tells me that I'm worth that and may seem minimal to you, but to me, that means a lot. So thank you. It's connection that creates community. And dude, we share a birthday. Why wouldn't I reach out to you for crying out loud? (laughs) I know. I know. We got to do something. I'll have to call you on our day. We got to celebrate. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much.